This was recorded live at Trinity Church in San Juan, Puerto Rico. For more information, go to trinitypr.org. Good morning, Trinity. I don't know, did I, I did this last time? I gotta move it again. See, here's, here's the uh, surprise you may not know, these, these handles. Many of you have always wondered, there's bathrooms back here. Surprise, yeah, it's a mirror image of those. Um, we just wall them off because we don't need them, and then that gets in the way of the screen, and it gets off center when we have to put the Christmas trees and stuff back there. It's just a whole mess. Okay, sorry. That being handled. My name is Zach Lutz. I'm the senior pastor here. It's a pleasure to be with you all this morning. We're continuing our sermon series in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in uh, verses 11 through 22 today. And uh, my, my parents are in town right up here, and they are Joaquin and Alora's grandparents. And so when grandparents are in town, you watch movies with your kids. And one of the movies I watched this last week was Raya and the Last Dragon. You like, kids know that out there, Raya and the Last Dragon on Disney. Um, if you don't know about Raya and the Last Dragon, the premise is this. It's a fictional world uh, called Kumandra, and it has been disunified and broken apart because of human pride, greed, and arrogance. The dragons, there's dragons in this world, they've, they've sacrificed themselves for some appearance of unity, but it was mostly pretense. It wasn't a lasting unity because there were still dangers, and actually human pride would come back in and separate it again, and so Raya and her friends are out to find the dragon magic that will fi finally bring unity. Our passage today is about unity, and as I was watching this, I was thinking, man, there are so many stories in our culture about what can be, bring uh, true and lasting unity, what can really bring wholeness to a separated and divided people. For Ryan and the Last Dragon, you know, some of the themes in there are that we have to trust one another. Uh, in our world, there's going to be other examples that there needs to be tolerance and acceptance of other people's views, and that this is going to bring true unity if we could all just do this one thing. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes in the cynicism of my own heart, I tend to hear some of these claims, like, if we could all just do this thing, then there would be unity between all of us. And I tend to say, like, that will never happen. <laughs> there will always be divisions among us. But the Bible doesn't actually take that cynical tone. The Bible says there actually will be unity, and that there will only be unity in Christ Jesus alone. But Describing this unity is fascinating. So if you'll remember last week, we were talking about how we have salvation by grace through faith. And this is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. And because of this salvation, we have a new status. And today, Paul's going to talk about that status as a new citizenship. He's going to say, in order to have unity, you have to have unity with your brothers and sisters inside of this citizenship. But this kind of unity is going to require something of you going to require you to reprioritize some things in your life. It's going to cause you to reprioritize your social life, your theology, and your worship. So those are going to be our three points today. To have true unity in Christ Jesus, we're going to have to reprioritize our social life, our theology, and our worship. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. This comes from Ephesians 2, chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. 
But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments and ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and he preached peace to you, to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, this ends the reading of God's word. And the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. May he bless it for you and for me. Please be seated. So we're exploring this idea of, of unity. And we've recognized that three things are going to have to change, or we're going to, we're going to see that three things have to change. Our social life is going to need to be reprioritized. Our theology is going to be need to be correctly prioritized, and our worship is going to need reprioritized. Now, I've got another movie here. If, if you've been here for a while, you know, I just, I use a ton of movie references, and I just, you must think I'm like in front of Netflix all the time, which would not be inaccurate, but it's not totally accurate. But there's another children's movie called Cheaper by the Dozen. I also love children's movie. It's old. I don't know if you've seen it. You don't need to know anything else about this story besides the fact that it's about a family with 12 kids. And some of the older children make fun of a younger child who has a bunch of differences. He's kind of the odd man out in the family, right? He's kind of the runt, the nerd. He stands out. And they give him a nickname as they pick on him, and they call him FedEx, as if to say that FedEx delivered him to the family, but he was not naturally born inside of it. They use kind of a derogatory term, a slur, uh, to create division among differences inside of their family. And you know what? That's kind of what's happening here in verse 11. Paul starts with this derogatory term that's being used by the circumcision towards the uncircumcision. It is clear that the Jewish Christians, just I, I want to be clear because we're going to be talking about kind of Jews and Gentiles in here. Um, he's talking to people who uh, are Christians in the church in Ephesus. That's who the letter is to. So these Jews and Gentiles are kind of categories, right? Uh, subgroups within the church that are having a tr hard time getting along. But it's clear that the Jewish Christians in Ephesus thought that they were the rightful children and that the Gentile Christians were an aberration, maybe like FedEx, an exception that they were forced to deal with for a time. It appears that the Jewish Christians were trying to create division within their church because of social differences. Socially, Jews and Gentiles were different. I can't imagine that it felt good to be called the uncircumcision. Like you come to faith in Jesus Christ, who himself was a Jew, and the Jewish Christians who are there, who also believe in Jesus, start calling you kind of a subjugated populace that's an exception. Hey, FedEx. Hey, the uncircumcision. I mean, you could just imagine being a Gentile listener, because uh, this letter was probably read out loud on a Sunday morning, maybe much like this, or maybe in the afternoon and evening, but, uh, and they're reading through it, and it says, starts in this passage, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh. So Paul himself seems to be in with the Jewish Christians in their church, right? Maybe if they were bristling at, at kind of being called the uncircumcision, now Paul himself 
The authoritative apostle is saying, you Gentiles are not like me. Paul was a Jewish Christian. Remember that at that time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were separated, alienated, strangers, without hope and without God. You can almost feel your stomach sinking. Yes, I know, I know what I was. I remember, you're right, Paul. But Paul's not just speaking to the Gentile Christians here. He's going to be speaking actually primarily to the Jewish Christians as well. And so in verse 13, he says, but you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Verse 14, he broke down the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15, he created in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. It seems that what, happening, what was happening was that the Jewish Christians were feeling some sort of social discomfort at having Gentiles now in their faithful body. And I imagine that it kind of went the other way. I'm sure the Gentiles also felt a little bit of discomfort worshiping together. And it appears that, honestly, both of these people would have preferred to worship as two separate bodies. They would have been like, we can both worship Jesus, but we could worship as two separate bodies. But Paul says, this cannot be. Your social discomfort cannot prevent you from true unity in Christ Jesus. Christ came to create real and lasting unity, and he's going to do it over and in spite of your social discomforts. In fact, your comfort matters very little to the unity that Jesus is trying to bring. He was awfully uncomfortable on the cross. Paul is saying to the Jewish Christians in Ephesus something like this. You have more in common, like you think you have more in common with uh, your, your kind of circumcised Jewish family who denies Jesus, but you have more in common in Christ Jesus with your uncircumcised fellow believers than you do with circumcised Jews who deny Jesus. Of course, it doesn't feel like it, but that is what you confess to be true when you confess faith in Jesus Christ. And in order to experience this true unity, you must live it amongst yourselves. You cannot keep exploiting differences to cause division, but you must create unity around your shared citizenship. Now, we don't have the same Jew and Gentile distinctions in our culture today, right? So what sort of social reprioritization needs to happen for us? Well, on a basic level, it means that you have more in common with brothers and sisters in Christ, wherever they may be, than you do with unbelieving friends and family members. Of course, it doesn't feel like it, right? It feels like culturally you get along with your unbelieving family members better than you do some of your believing brothers and sisters in Christ. But Paul is saying the reality of us all being in Christ means that we have the most in common with those who share our citizenship. If I could say it this way, you have more in common with a Democrat who believes in Jesus than you do a Republican who denies Jesus, and vice versa. You have more in common with a Russian who sings praises to Jesus than you do a U.S. service member who disdains Jesus. Jesus unites us together. He is our primary allegiance. Of course, we might be more comfortable with people of our own culture than we would be with Christians from other cultures, but our comfort has very little to do with the unity that Christ Jesus is bringing in his own body. Our new citizenship requires prioritizing our shared citizenship over our experienced differences. But this has a, this has a further implication for those of us in this room, because many of us were transplants to Puerto Rico. So I'm going to speak for myself here. 
or transplants to Puerto Rico and the difficulty of crossing cultures, I can start to yearn to be back in my home culture, where things are easier for me, more comfortable for me, and more familiar for me. And I can begin to believe the lie that I have more in common with my home culture than I do with those here in Puerto Rico with whom I have a God-given shared citizenship. I start to believe that I will be most whole, that I will be most unified when I get back to where I'm from instead of reprioritizing my social life to align with what I proclaim to be true. What do I proclaim to be true? That true unity is only found in Christ's body. True wholeness and unity, God does not promise to give me true wholeness and and unity in my home culture, but God does promise me true wholeness and unity in Christ's body. And by God's grace, he has given me his body right here with you. Now, let's be honest, some of us make each other uncomfortable, whether it's our culture or our backgrounds, but instead of using these differences to create divisions, we have to reprioritize our social lives around our shared citizenship. And I know this is a little vague, like I feel like I want to land it a little hard and I just, I I couldn't quite do it because I want to be careful. I do not want us creating token friendships of cultural diversity because the world says so. That form will never bring true unity, but just pretense unity. I want us to create authentic relationships in Christ Jesus that reveal that our deepest unity, what we share, what we believe that we have most in common is Christ Jesus and him alone. And it requires us living that truth, living a reprioritization of our lives and not living in the lie that we have more in common with people who might deny Jesus. Now, of course, I'm not saying you can't spend time with your unbelieving family members, and of course, the experience is going to feel like uh, it's more comfortable and easy for you. And yet, what you're doing when you live out the discomfort of uh, social interactions with fellow believers in Christ, whether it's through our small groups or meeting together one-on-one or praying for one another or meeting each other up at work, if you work in the same places, it's to say, I'm actually prioritizing our shared citizenship above whatever else we may have differences between us. Our new citizenship reprioritizes our social relationships, and when we lean into the reality of what we confess to be true, we'll find true unity in Christ Jesus. Now, this distinction between Jew and Gentile, it wasn't simply social, and I'm sure many of you are already thinking it, but it's also theological. And so for us to have true unity, we can't just have uh, social implications, but we also have to have theological implications. We need to correctly prioritize our theology And I want to explain it like this. Circumcision for the Jews was like baptism for us. Imagine somebody saying that they were a Christian and that they were not baptized. Now, if they were getting baptized that day, we would be like, woohoo, that's great. But if they're like, oh, no, no, I don't want to be baptized. You kind of would rightly bristle at the fact to be like, wait a second, Christians ought to be baptized. Jesus commanded it. And the Jews said this. They said, you cannot be saved, you cannot be part of the commonwealth of Israel and participate in the covenants of promises, you cannot have hope and be with God without being circumcised. God commanded it. This is the way that you are brought into the covenant community of God. The Jews, though, had misprioritized their theology because they had forgotten something fundamental about the Old Testament. They believed that their citizenship, right? Remember, come back with me here. They they thought that they were born into the family and that the other ones were FedEx, right? So they thought that they belonged. And in some sense, Paul is saying there's some truth there. 
But their citizenship, they thought, gave them permission to be a class above the Gentiles. More authentic, more true. True Christians in the real sense. And this can actually make sense to us in some way. Like most of us were born U.S. citizens, and so we don't think about this very often. But a U.S. citizen, according to USA.gov, this is what they are. They owe their allegiance to the United States. They're entitled to its protection. They should exercise their rights and responsibilities as citizens. And I think all of us would say that any person, whether they were naturally born or naturalized in, who spurs their allegiance of the United States, seeks the protection of another nation, abuses their rights and fails in their responsibilities by breaking the laws, would be at minimum subject to the punishment of the state, but we would probably collectively agree that we are hesitant to call them citizens. <laughs> We're like, I'm not really sure you're worthy of that term. You abandoned allegiance, you sought the protection of another nation, you failed in your rights and your responsibilities, and it seems like you don't want your citizenship. Paul's kind of using a similar sort of logic here. See, he uses the citizenship language in this passage in verse 12. That word commonwealth um, is kind of difficult for us to find an English word for, but it, it comes to the word that's related um, to the word citizenship that he uses later in 19. And so we're just going to borrow that for a second. He's talking about being citizens of Israel. Jews owed their allegiance to God. They were entitled to God's protection. And they were to exercise their rights and responsibilities following the law of God. The Jews in, in Ephesus thought, the Jewish Christians, thought that they had accomplished this goal. And so that they had something to bring to the table that the Gentiles did not. We have some fulfillment of the law that makes us a class of head. And Paul needed to come to them and say, no, it's not just that they're adopted into the family. Actually, both men need to be broken down. Both bodies need to be broken down and recreated in a new body. Christ Jesus came and preached the gospel to those who were far off, the Gentiles, and he preached the gospel to those who were near, the Jews. He broke down the dividing wall of hostility and so created a new man in place of the two so that they might be saved. The Jews had misprioritized, the Jewish Christians in Ephesus, they had they misprioritized their theology, thinking that they could bring something to the table and they needed to be corrected. The Jewish Christians needed to learn to reprioritize their theology to come to see themselves as the same situation as the Gentile Christians. I know, like, we got a little technical here, and we're dealing with, like, the law of God. There's a lot of questions that can be asked here about how the Old Testament law applies today. I can't do that this morning, so I'm just like, put a pin in that and then come talk to me later. Um, but that's kind of why I'm being a little technical here in my language. But I want to say, what does this mean for us? And I want to say, as simply as what this means, we must reprioritize our theology. We must major on the majors and minor on the minors. Have you ever heard this phrase before? Major on the majors, minor on the minors. And they're kind of talking about getting like college degrees, right? You get a major in the things that are very important. You get a minor in the things that are less important to you, right? In our theology, we need to major on the major in minors on the minors. And the best example that I can think of is what we talked about a couple weeks ago with heresy. I need to be able to rightly define theology so that I know who I'm able to have right unity with. For instance, I cannot have any sort of true unity with Mormons. The Church of Latter-day Saints denies the full divinity and the full humanity of Christ Jesus. This is a fundamental, core, primary doctrine to the Christian faith that unites me to brothers and sisters around the world and throughout time. And their denial of that doesn't mean that we 
can't en enjoy fellowship or a meal somewhere or be kind to one another, but it means that I can't have the kind of unity that you and I can have because their theology is incorrect. I must correctly know it. But at the same time, I'm a Reformed Presbyterian, which means a lot of things, but one of the things it means is that I baptize babies because these promises are for you and for your children after you. If I incorrectly prioritize that secondary doctrine of baptism as a primary doctrine, then I create divisions where there need not be any between my Baptist brothers and sisters and myself. Now, of course, we may find it difficult to worship together or pastor in the same churches because we have different convictions, but that's different than a fundamental disunity that I might have. And we need to work towards the reprioritization, all of us in our theology, to make sure that the majors are majors and the minors are minors. And frankly, that just means that this takes work. <laughs> it's worth it studying doctrine. It's worth it figuring out what you grew up with. It's worth it figuring out why it is that somebody said something and it goes, that doesn't sound quite right to me. It's worth it for you to wrestle through those doctrines that you don't understand and figure out where you land. Not so that we can create further division. We're not supposed to use it that way. But so that we might actually love one another better. Right theological prioritization allows me to create true unity with those brothers and sisters who are actually worshiping Jesus as he portrays himself in Scripture, even if we differ on lesser doctrines. Okay, so in order to have true unity, we have to reprioritize our social lives. We have to or correctly prioritize our theological lives, you might say. But there's one more thing we need for true unity, and that is a reprioritized worship. Now, if you remember last week, I talked about Paul kind of making these new words, He's kind of cramming words together like brunch, breakfast and lunch. He's mushing them together. He's making a new word. Um, and they, they were the words that were like this. Uh, he said, made us alive together with, raised us up together with, and seated us with, if you remember this from last week. Well, in this passage, he's doing almost the same thing. And he's actually doing it with the same prefix, but he's making words that, that don't really exist anywhere else. Like, it's kind of hard for us to figure out what he means by them. And these are the words that he did this with. Verse 19, citizens together. Verse 21, joined together, and verse 23, built together. Earlier in chapter 2, we, we learned that in order to have a strong, stable, and resilient faith, we needed to be united to Christ. We need to be with Him. And here we learn to live out our unity, we need to be togethered. Together as citizens, joined together, built together into a temple of God. What was the purpose of all of this togetherness? Like, why is Paul ending here on, like, all these things we need to do together? Well, look at verse 22. To become a dwelling place for God. Now, in order to understand the importance of this, I really want to go back to 20 Old Testament passages, but I'm not going to do that to you. I'm just going to summarize real quick. God dwelled with Adam and Eve face to face in the garden. He dwelled with them. But they sinned, and so he had to put them out of the garden. They needed to be separated. He needed to leave. His presence needed to leave their presence. But later in the story of Scripture, God dwells again with his people in the tabernacle in the temple. And it says the fullness of his presence filled the tabernacle in the temple, and God dwelled with his people. But then in Israel's hardness of heart, and what we all do, they sinned against God, and God's presence left the temple in the tabernacle. God would come to dwell with us again, though, when we get to the New Testament, and Jesus came, and it says that God himself, in the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ came and he dwelled with us, face to face, walked with us, ate with us. 
But then he too, when he was resurrected, said, I'm leaving you for a little while until my father sends me back. He says, but I'm sending you a helper. God himself, the Holy Spirit, will indwell you. And it will knit you together with fellow believers in Christ for a particular purpose, that you might be the dwelling place of God himself together. Here's what this means. Remember, Paul's writing to an Ephesian church who has divisions within it. And he's trying to say to them in this thing, all these things you do together matters. Church matters. Worship matters. You cannot, cannot have faith apart from the church. That is never how the Bible talks about it. When people have faith, they are baptized into the number. When they partake of communion, they come as often as they gather together. It's part of the reason that we don't do uh, baptisms outside of the church, and it's part of the reason, outside of the church body, outside of these church walls, we might do it, but we try to take the church with us and the people, right? Because it's the people that are being knit together. And it's part of the reason that we don't do communion on our own, but we come when we gather together. Why do you listen to me preach for 30-ish minutes every week? Have you ever like, thought about it? I'm, I'm going a little meta here. There are better preachers. Right? I mean, I don't... I'm not going to take it personally. I know there's better preachers. I listen to them. (laughs) Also, why even preaching? It's a weird medium, right? Why isn't this just a lecture? Why just go point one, point two, point three? Okay, you guys got your notes. Okay, great. Preaching's kind of weird. I saw a picture of a friend of mine's uh, pulpit, and it had the last few words of John 12, 21 uh, kind of taped up there. And this is what the end of John 12, 21 says, it says, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. And it's a reminder for him that the people that he's preaching to wish to see Jesus, not his own um, theatrical abilities or preaching or eloquence or whatever else. These people are gathered here by God's Spirit to see Jesus. We preach because Jesus ordained that for local sheep there would be a local shepherd. And even though you can't quite explain it, you come here and you listen to me preach because Jesus has promised in the power of the Holy Spirit to meet you here and preach to you. I just want you to look at verse 17. Where do you think Jesus preached to the Ephesians? Do you think the Ephesians ever saw Jesus? We have zero record of Jesus ever traveling there. Jesus never going to Ephesus. And in fact, it's pretty rare that Jesus would speak to Gentiles at all in his earthly ministry, but he tasked his disciples to do that. He does a couple times. Jesus preaches to us through the preaching of pastors in a worship service. It's why there's no preaching to an empty room. In fact, during COVID, it was exceptionally difficult for me and other preachers to preach to this room, this very room, empty. I, as your pastor, am yours, and you are mine. I'm not some disembodied voice coming through a podcast. I'm here in flesh and blood by God's grace, preaching to you who are far off and to you who are near. Now, I want to make some things very clear. I'm not the cornerstone as you read through this passage. My words are held accountable to his words, to the foundation that he laid in the prophets and the apostles. And just a side note there, he's using these words technically the prophets of the Old Testament, the apostles of the New who were authorized by Jesus to proclaim his word, whose words are recorded in Scripture. These aren't 
um, apostles that are roaming around today. There were specific people that we have recorded. I am not the cornerstone, and yet all of us come in order that we might see Jesus, that we might hear him calling to us, and we do this together. This is where Jesus preaches to us. But there's another thing that we do together. We come together to be familiar with the covenants of promise. If you went back to verse 12, baptism and the Lord's Supper, we celebrate together. As I already mentioned, it's why we don't do it outside of the church, but we do it in the church. Again, not just the building, but with each other gathered, because when we gather together, we partake of his body and his blood. This is also the place in church where we, as one structure, lay aside all of our other allegiances for a short time, and we acknowledge that this is the most important thing to all of us. This citizenship reorganizes us all around, despite whatever social backgrounds or discomforts that we have. Together, we are preached to by Jesus. Together, we have his covenantal promises declared over us in the sacraments. Together, we live out true unity. We sing in one voice at the same time. We pray in one voice at the same time together. We lay aside our differences, partaking of the same body and the same blood, declaring with our outward actions an inward reality that we are not our own. We are not simply Americans or Puerto Ricans, Presbyterians or Baptists, Ukrainian or Russian. We are one really, truly in Christ Jesus, in his body. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ did not just give us the abstracted idea of salvation, but intended that it would be connected to a body of believers that would then make that salvation not only real in our own lives personally, help be a sanctifying effect on our lives, but also that we might have true unity with people over things that are the most important, Christ Jesus himself, that we might be able to break down dividing walls of hostility. Now, it is at this point that I would like to acknowledge that churches rarely feel like the place of unity. There are some churches who have profoundly misprioritized their social relationships, their theology, and their worship. And in fact, there are many ways that Trinity itself does this. We are not the unblemished bride of Christ yet. And we live, even today, in full dependence upon him. We are a people in process, and so even as we fail, we pray that we might have a sensitive conscience and humble hearts to change and repent of those ways where we are causing disunity and to cry out to God to make us one that we might reprioritize our social relationships, that we might correctly prioritize our theology, and that when we come together to worship, we might focus on what is most important, not on those things that are secondary. Because we all come together and we proclaim again what we learned last week. Thank God that Jesus saved us. Thank God that Jesus is sanctifying his bride unifying her, removing every blemish. Thank God that our salvation and our unity is not dependent upon our works, but on his gift alone that none of us may boast. And so we may cry out in one spirit and ask that Jesus's prayer for us might be answered, that we might be one even as he and the Father are one. This we do only in reliance upon Jesus, not out of our own strength. We look at what is true and we try to conform our lives to it. And we do that by God's grace alone. Amen? Now, Jesus intended, again, not only that he preached to us, 
uh, through pastors throughout the ages, and that his word come, comes declared to those of us who are far off and to those of us that are near, but that we would also be able to taste a very similar thing that his disciples tasted on the night that he went to the cross. Because the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and having blessed it, he broke it, and he turned and he gave it to his disciples, as I, ministering his name, now give it to you. And Jesus said to them, take this bread and eat it. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, and after he had blessed it and given thanks, he said to his disciples, this is the blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for you for the remission of your sins. Take and drink. Now, this meal is for those who really do believe that Jesus is the only one who can bring true wholeness and unity in their lives. This meal is for those who have actually united their lives to his in baptism. If this isn't true for you, then we would ask that you not partake of this meal, but we would love to answer any questions that you have about that. Myself, Kyle, or any of our other staff, and come and partake another day when you have been united in baptism to Christ's death and resurrection. In a moment, I'm going to pray, and then we can come down the center aisle, and you can go to these serving stations on my right and my left. Um, if you require gluten-free, um, the only side that has gluten-free is that one, so you're going to want to go that way. Your right, my left. And then there's red wine and clear grape juice. Please take according to your conscience. If you would, please pray with me. Lord Jesus, you not only united us to yourself, but to each other. And as we partake of the one loaf, may you, Holy Spirit, unite us together with each other and with you. May you allow this mystery to work to provide us access to the Father and taste the peace and unity that we have upon our lips, that we have indeed feasted upon Christ's flesh, and that we have indeed drank his blood, that we are his sheep, and we do belong to one another. And I ask this in Jesus' name, amen.